Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm Rob McLeod. In our last episode, we interviewed Dr. David Labrie from Stanford Graduate School of Education and author of Someone Has to Fail and How to Succeed in School Without Really Trying. That interview was done by my co-host, Brendan O'Leary, and his head of school, Dwayne Primo. We wanted to take today's episode to have some time for reflections between Dwayne, Brendan, and myself on some of the key themes and big ideas that Dr. David Labrie brought forward. Some of our conversation will reflect on our own personal experiences in the Ontario and British school systems, but also teasing apart some of the tensions that Dr. David Labrie brought up, those tensions of school being a social institution, as well it providing individual good and social mobility. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Just a small heads up, we did run into a few technical difficulties. For those of you who are audiophiles, you may notice a little difference in the sound of our voices. That said, if you have not yet listened to episode 68, I'd recommend that you go back and listen to that first. It was a very interesting interview, and as I said last time, I think nearly every sentence Dr. David Labrie said in that could be fleshed out further into a full episode in and of itself. Enjoy our reflection. A reflection on the interview that myself and Dwayne did last week with Professor David Labrie. So for me, it was really fascinating. First of all, thanks to Dwayne for stepping in and doing a, a great job tossing questions David's way. Uh, it was really cool to sit back and hear David's contributions and where a lot of what he was saying was overlapping with what we say here on the podcast on a regular basis. For me, at first, I was scribbling down almost every sentence he was saying. <laughs> it was like, oh no, I'm just going to end up rereading a transcript of what he said because I found almost every sentence fascinating or I had some kind of like kernel of something I'd want to dig into. But I've managed to kind of separate it down to about four different themes. Um, so maybe I'll just give you a heads up of what I might talk about, and then we'll see where we go. So big idea number one, once institutions are formed, they can shift purpose. But he was talking about the move from kind of the traditional nation-building purpose of school to basically one of securing capital in a, a political institution now. Two, that tension of the love of learning for learning's sake while at the same time meeting the system and economics demands, or the economy's demands. Three, and I kind of have a three and a half here as well, schools are serving multiple functions for a lot of people. Now, some of those are contradictory functions, uh, but this is something that makes school change really difficult. And then the kind of 3.5 tied into that is, it's very clear that education is tied to politics, and, you know, it seems blatantly obvious, but for some reason it popped in my mind as I was listening, like, oh, yeah, because it's coming from a minister of education in every country. Like, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the, the details of what goes on in school, but it's like, oh, yeah, initially this is a much larger thing. Uh, and then finally, the fourth thing, which kind of loops into the three themes I've already discussed, this idea of learning versus credential line. Learning versus credentialing. There's, I managed to get it in there. A new word for me, credentialing. So, uh, yeah, maybe we'll kind of ease in and out of all four of those themes. But I guess, yeah, that first part, once institutions are formed, they can shift purpose. So he was talking about how 
education as a nationwide endeavor began for the sake of nation building, but now it's essentially become an economic function. And it's more about skills and prosperity and the good for the individual. What did you guys make out of that? I thought it was pretty interesting. So he went to nation building and community building in the beginning. And then he talked about not just a slight change that, you know, after that happened and the nation was built, it was straight on. We're going into this whole new market driven. So we're driving economic capital here. We're making people that can produce products to keep the economy going. I thought that was a bit dark and a pretty big move. It wasn't a slow transition at all. I mean, that's pretty much in line with what, what the story we kind of told, right? Going from the one room schoolhouse into these kind of mainstream schools. I thought that his description of how you basically use the magic of schools to create nations was pre- was a pretty good spin on that kind of how traditional schools didn't, we always just said traditional, traditional schools came out of the nation. We haven't touched on the idea before that actually they kind of built the nation. I mean, he's talking about the States, right? So in Britain and, and the Prussian model in Europe, there was a longer running and yet probably to a greater extent, it, it built on top of an already established kind of system. But in the States, if you look at, Horace Mann and the, the, the public schooling stuff that came pretty quickly and kind of a long time before places like Britain. Yeah, it was like it was just waiting for that mainstream school to just be given the permission to go. And then it just went, it just exploded. And then at the same time, this idea that you're persuading people to be part of something that's bigger than your little community and bigger than your your village, again, fits in very much with our idea of mainstream schooling wasn't just about small communities. It was about actually starting to, to look at that bigger nation system and then arguably, you know, going global over the course of the 20th century, but it's still, that's still coming in, in a way. And it was interesting, I liked his one line about, we don't have to legally force kids into school. The labor market kind of does it for us. This idea that like, okay, well, if we could theoretically take the labor market out of the picture, why would a kid go to school? It's like, okay, well, yeah, we can kind of explore that. But it's like, well, the reality is, you know, 18, 20 years down the road, the kid's going to enter the labor market And a lot of what they have access to is going to be dependent on what they did in school. Now, of course, not entirely, but obviously this is the, there's a reason that school comes first and then like the labor market theoretically comes second. And I think the way that David was framing it's like, oh no, they're actually extensions of the same thing. They aren't separate things. They are actually completely intertwined. And the thing that looks like school is actually just the beginning of the labor market in one way. Now, it's not only that. And I think that's one of his other points. School is many things to many different people and at times contradictory. But one of the things that schools are is an extension of the labor market. I think how he framed his version of the three types of school. 
he didn't he didn't quite say it that way but and very much I, I said this to you I think this was a way of looking at the three types of school that currently exist within the mainstream school so it's not quite as distinct as traditional mainstream progressive it was more like these are I think the one that he talks about that's more political is about building citizenship yeah that kind of aligns very much with our views on traditional education where the other two are, are more or less versions of mainstream education one where it's about yeah it is a community thing building skills for the job market and on the other side it's individuals kind of trying to get the most they can out of the game for better or worse yeah and he i like he made the distinction between um we've already said this from nation building to more um economic function but i like that he also said you know it's gone from a political or civic investment to an investment in the economy as well. And I think, yeah, what you're pointing out is that the mainstream school in many ways can go a few different directions, but at the end of the day, I think it's safe to say that any variation or variance we would see within a mainstream school is probably happening due to being able to serve the economy or opportunity or progress in some kind of way. And I appreciated the face that both of you guys made when he was saying that bit about you know, as educators, it's, I don't think any of us get up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm going to create human capital today. That gets me out of bed. I'm investing in the future growth of my country. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, that idea that school is many things, many things to many people. It's like, okay, on the systems level, I think he's accurate. I think school is an extension of the, the market. But to us, the people actually in the school and meeting face-to-face with a room full of students... It's like, oh, it, it feels like it's something completely different. And it takes me back to that like analogy of the, uh, what is it, the, the five people who are vision impaired touching the elephant. I think it's an Indian parable that you know, the person touching the tail thinks an elephant is like a paintbrush because it's thin and wiry, and the person touching the trunk thinks it's like a snake, and the person touching the leg thinks an elephant's like a tree. It's like when we talk about education depending if you're looking from the systems perspective or the day-to-day classroom relationships or the you know individual student progress it's like ah this this isn't a a one dimensional entity here this is a very complex thing across space time systems and all that i almost feel a tension with these pauses almost almost similar to the tension that david mentioned but the love of learning and uh, this idea that he said, you know, I think the best teachers are the ones who help students find a way to appreciate learning for learning's sake. And they do that alongside being able to meet those systemic or economic demands on school. And I really like the one bit he said um, at one point. Uh, it was interesting because a lot of his language overlapped with things we've said on the podcast. And one of the things that we talk about is we've laid out that we believe across traditional mainstream and progressive schools, there's kind of three aims of school. So uh, basically the cultivation of citizenship, work preparation, and self-development. And I think he was kind of hinting that, you know, this idea of learning, loving to learn for the sake of learning, um, I think that's much more in alignment with the the self-development aim of school. And the idea, I think he said something to the effect of, so that, you know, down the road, you know, 
you can handle whatever gets thrown at you because you have those skills of loving loving learning and growing, developing, problem solving, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I like that he pointed out that any school that prioritizes one of those aims over the other too much becomes unhealthy. So the school that becomes just about work preparation or getting you to the next step of school, getting you into the next best school, that's where schools become unhealthy. And it's interesting because we didn't do the thought experiment of what about the other two, but I think that holds up. If your school you know, overemphasizes that citizenry part, but not the work prep or the self-development, I can also see that that's unbalanced. Then a school that would just completely prioritize self-development over economic preparation and over citizenship ends up, I think, kind of creating, you know, an entity out unto itself that's not connected to the larger system. So I thought that was a cool idea as well. Mm-hmm. I also was interesting how he talked about how all of those led, though, to gaming the system, right? So kids preparing to be good citizens are like, okay, how can I get through this very quickly and become a good citizen? so I can move on to the next stage and get a good job. And so it doesn't come about that self-development. It really comes about, okay, I don't really want to put in a lot of time to myself. I want to get all these credentials so I can move forward. I'm going to figure out how to do that in the best and easiest way. I think a big point he made was uh, doing good and doing well. So, you know, we do good for the environment. We do good for the world, like, teaching ourselves to be good people, but then also doing well in that on those credentials so we can move forward in society. So I'm not really sure, though, how we can have all of that happening at the same time because, we, as he talked about, when you shake one branch, the rest of the tree shakes because it's so complex. Yeah, and at its core, like he was pointing out that part of this is so complicated because at the end of the day, this is a successful public institution. He said something like, you know, in 200 years, we went from education being very small scale and poor to now, at least in the United States, one third of all public funds are going towards this. Like, in the course of human history, if we do look at it from a historic perspective, that's a very successful institution in 200 years to go from essentially nothing to a third of all public funds going towards it. And as he pointed out, it's not like school is in isolation from society. It informs how we structure our days. It informs how we structure holidays, regardless if you're connected to education or not. You know, we've, and what I liked was he was saying, like, figure out how it works and then figure out how to use the levers within it. Because I think it's too easy to come from any one point in the elephant and think you can change the entire elephant. I think figuring out how it works, how it's connected to so many other things, but then seeing what those levers are within there is the really strategic thing. And needing to be able to take a bigger perspective and a larger view than just your one part (laughs) of the elephant you know, look at the rest of it, see how it's working, and then engage with how it's working, not trying to, like, get rid of body parts. Of, I keep coming back to the elephant thing, but not trying to get rid of body parts of the elephant or give it new appendages. Rather, see how it functions and then, like, 
be able to function with it in relationship to that. Yeah, and I think one of the key ideas we talked about reform. So he, you know, he's taught courses to to graduate students on on educational reform, and just how often it kind of fails, and not just because it's like we said a political football, and every four years somebody comes along with a new set of ideas. That's obviously part of it, but also not acknowledging the complexity of the system. And so you poke one part, like you say. And sometimes it gives and, and, and some kind of evolution does happen or even a revolution. But many times it will just resist and there will be just all of these kind of ways to avoid actually taking those those matters to the heart of the education system. And so I, I kind of like what he said when he described it as the radically decentralized nature of school. And we actually think of it in the model in politics or in kind of mainstream media is that it's all kind of one thing. It's top down, it's from the government and everybody kind of follows more or less the, the rules. And, and of course, to a great extent in public school, that is the way it works. But also every single, every single school has its own identity. And so he described his, uh, one of his students who I think he said her name, her name was Erin, Erin Robb. And I'd like to follow up with her and find out what she does because it sounds really interesting and not. And, and kind of similar to maybe what Silke Weiss does, possibly. But this idea of going in and talking to everyone in the community and listening and getting beyond those simple answers, if I want this, I want this, and getting into that richer conversation and realizing that everybody in the community actually has kind of thought about this fairly deeply and has some pretty nuanced and interesting ideas the important ideas of, of where to go and then how do you make that happen in your in your school and in your community without it pushing that other stuff out yeah and i think that's and, uh, where this tension again a different tension comes in uh david said something to the effect of like schools are resilient in the face of efforts to change them because it's serving like multiple functions for a lot of people, and some of those are contradictory functions. But it, what did he say? Gives enough to a whole bunch of constituencies, even if it's not ideal to anybody. So I've often used this term with Brendan just in our own side discussions where I'm like, well, it seems like school's serving its purpose enough that it doesn't need massive wide-scale change it's serving it enough and it's like it's not getting to the threshold where like any one or multiple stakeholders are like you know rising up in revolt of like we've had enough this is horrible it's sort of like it's doing i'm not even saying like the least i'm not saying it's doing an unsatisfactory job but it's like it's providing enough that the system itself isn't turning in on itself to say, well, how do we actually maximize or optimize things for all of the stakeholders? Because I think that's when you get into this insanely complex and resist and, and likely resistant to change um, discussion. Because, you know, we only touched on a handful of the stakeholders, but it's like, well, who are some of the stakeholders? Students, parents, 
teachers, school administrators, the larger community, you know, higher education, the <laughs> the economy, the business market. It's like, you know, it would be an it would be interesting to take an afternoon and try and sit down of like, okay, so what are the desires, aims, and wants of all of those stakeholders? And would there be some way to optimize things that people are getting more than enough, but actually more more than enough, I guess, would be the way to say that. What was this comment? I think it says school school is going to be what I need, not necessarily what I want. And you started talking about who are the stakeholders. So it's those top stakeholders that are still kind of driving it. And he was talking about the changes really have to come from the bottom, you know, until school actually goes in. And going back to those stakeholders, who are the stakeholders and having those conversations? But the conversations are are not just about education. They're about knowing about the community so you can sculpt the education to fit the needs of the community, not just the needs of the economy. I think it was an even more loaded question at one point of who's the client. Especially in a school where it's private, where it's not paid for by tax money. Who's the client here? And uh, a more traditional leaning education might uh, defer to some bigger authority, whether it's the village authority, you know, or, or, or on a nationwide level and say, actually, yeah, it's the, the government or the local school board who gets to make all of these decisions. And the mainstream one would be probably more driven by the data. There might not actually be a client per se. Or the client might be the economy of the nation. Progressive, progressive education would say the client is the child, I think, always. Although they wouldn't like that term client probably very much. <laughs> um, but it becomes even more complex when it's not paid for by, by tax dollars and it's paid by individuals. But he did also describe that those schools are the ones who can make meaningful change a little quicker. Because... They're not beholden to those larger government kind of structures always. And so they can make those decisions within. And it's really about spending that time and, and feeling that it is worthwhile. And we've talked a lot about, I guess, the mindset. Traditional education was kind of what he described of like, we're over here where the school parents stay back. And, uh, you know, in, in a school we've worked in in the past, I've heard you know, that expressed of, you know, we, we do our, we do our things here and, uh, and, and it's not wrong, but it kind of says that we know what's happening. And he, you know, David is essentially critiquing that view and saying, have a bit of humility. You don't know everything. Listen, talk to people. And then with the expertise you have, you're probably in a better position to make that decision maybe than any individual in the group. But still, listen and be ready to change. He talked about hope. I, th or I think he's, a lot of what he said was hopeful for the future. What was your take on that stuff? Yeah, I think we're getting clearer on what we don't want from school. So like, like he was talking about how we don't want school to be just about picking winners and losers. We don't want it to be just about a fancy degree. We want you to be able to do stuff. Uh, it's not just about getting ahead, you know, 
we, or rather, it's not just about you getting ahead. We kind of want all children, all students to get ahead. And, you know, then he talked about some of those larger things like, you know, we want to live in a peaceful area with low crime and we want people to be friendly. And I think to connect back to the thing we were talking about a minute ago, that idea of decentralizing education, that's where I have more hope. And I think, you know, that fits with our narrative here on the podcast, especially once you get to that more progressive approach, but certainly as we move into that more integrative value, there's the idea of, dude, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to this. We're never going to have something that is more than just enough if it is a top-down-only, one-size-fits-all solution. And my hope would be that with increases in technology, the kind of like more global take on things, uh, you know, this last insane year where all of a sudden we're re-questioning a lot of the norms of school, uh, questioning what is school, what isn't school, where does school happen, all these kinds of things. To me, there is a hope that maybe there will be more space to say, okay, yeah, there are some guiding principles we want all schools in our country to adhere to, for example, but given your context, given your community, given where you are, given students' needs, parents' values, the other stakeholders here, I think there does, not not only does there need to be, but I think there is hope in the idea of more of a ground-up, from-the-bottom-up kind of approach to education. And whether or not we see that, that's another thing, but to me that is a place of hope and to me, like the logical next step of where education will go, it's just a matter of how soon or how far into the future that is. Yeah, I connect to that one too. I think that with that hope about education coming becoming more progressive, you know, when we have someone like David teaching teachers, and he was pretty clear that he has had grad students going in that direction. So obviously... Uh, those big universities and the teaching universities understand where we need to go. It's just figuring out how they can get teachers into those schools and make a difference. So if they're starting getting into the school now and they're young, because it's usually those older people in the school that are the leaders of the school. So it's it's still quite a few years down the road. Yeah. And again, I think this is one of those things where it can't happen in isolation. I think that's exactly what you just laid out there, Dwayne, is what needs or could happen within the schools. But, you know, again, we don't exist in a bubble. And one of our guests, um, Brad Kirshner, you know, he kept pointing this out, like, no, schools only exist within this larger context. So, you know, I think those ideas need to be mirrored some way in economics. I think some of these progressive ideas would need to be um, trickled through the politics trickled through the society more and more. And then it's sort of like, you know, we want an economy and a culture and individual work and individual beliefs to kind of be in coherence as best as possible. And right now, certainly the more, you know, sort of mainstream world is what's more prevalent around us. And we've talked about this a lot at the end of the day. We're very much in a mainstream, progress-oriented world. But 
possibly, if the world is to shift more and more to valuing some of those progressive values, and at the same time has systemic changes that allows for that kind of education to be the better fit, it'll be interesting to see how like each of those separate factors, I guess, either work together or don't. That's where I was going with the question about whether the populace had been duped. Again, it was a little bit of a hyperbolic question, but it was more to do with like, do we really feel that we would tr- that that's where we're at as a kind of culture? That if we had more of these conversations, we'd actually, you know, we'd realize that we do want that balance and we do probably want those elements of progressive education to be built into our system. And then we'd start to think about how you would do that. You would say, okay, you know, we keep having these conversations and every time we have them, we keep talking about standardized tests stop us from doing any kind of inquiry because, you know, they're pretty closed questions and you have to scram for them. So there's not a lot of time for inquiry, which takes way longer. But I know this from working in pretty kind of mainstream, even traditional leading schools, having conversations with parents that you can see their eyes light up when you talk about some of those progressive ideas of inquiry and asking questions and following the students' ideas and and, and what they're interested in and still making it meaningful and still having it be challenging. And then it's not too far into the conversation before you're like, but actually that's really hard to do because we have to do this test and hit these standards. And so it kind of seemed to suggest that more conversations with parents would take as more into a balanced kind of place. I don't know if you two share that same level of faith that the regression to the mean or the uh, the average kind of thought within our communities and our cultures would actually take us in a more progressive, leaning fashion if we took that conversation back to our communities. I don't know if it would, but I'm curious to what degree it would actually impact what the group's needs were like i i had an interesting moment just this past friday during a pd day with my head of school who's been very well versed in our model that we're using here on the podcast and you know we've been talking about this in depth every week for a year he and i together and you know we were just briefly touching on the progressive idea of a sociocratic structured school The idea of like a circle school, as we see in the Netherlands, where essentially all the stakeholders, students, parents, teachers, administrators, essentially that hierarchy gets flattened. And it is a flat hierarchy. Everyone's kind of on equal terms. Everyone more or less can have an equal say. And, you know, we've at least briefly touched base about this idea in our interview with Armin Sieber from the Integralis Tagesschule in, in Switzerland. And, you know, we've been talking about this for a year. And my head of school was like, it just hit me. Like, I, yeah, like it would be really like equal for all of the parties to voice things together. And we wouldn't have voices shutting down others. And it was like, we've talked around this idea dozens of times. But you could see it was like, oh, and, you know, he said this, he's like, I would need to see that in action because I don't see that anywhere. And I was like, that's the point. It's like some of these progressive ideas sound great 
and you know we can entertain them in our heart <laughs> and in our minds like you mentioned Brennan with the parents you speak to and their eyes light up but at the end of the day few of us are leaving that parent-teacher meeting going into a sociocratic structured company or having our world shaped in this way so it's still kind of foreign and I think until more of our businesses more of our organizations more of our parent groups more of our ultimate frisbee teams until more of them lean towards structuring in some of these maybe progressive ways it's not going to seem necessarily intuitively obvious to people that we could move towards them and at the same time you know there's still a level of skill of pulling this off successfully it's one thing to say hey we're going from this more meritocratic mainstream approach to organizing ourselves we want to be progressive well, choosing to become that is very different than effectively doing it. So, you know, there's still new skills, new capacities that weren't required of us previously to make these things work. So I think it's less about a decision or less about a consensus of we want to move in these directions and more like, hey, we're still going to need some of the skills we're using now, but we're actually talking about diving into a brand new field that's going to demand many different things from us and potentially have more ways it could go wrong. So we really need to up our games in order to make this better than what we have right now. So there's some hope in there, but it's like a hope that comes with, this is more than just changing your mind this is hope that comes with there's some actual responsibility in tow with this i'm pretty bleak on it to be honest because when you look at the complexity of being a principal you know i can probably change the school i'm in but what i've got to think on about, a good day on a good day i can try and change it get i can bring these ideas forward and hopefully people buy into them but then you've also got people that will go back to the norm of what they did in school and say, but, you know, they need these skills. They're not going to do that in the job. They're going to need to follow directions. They're going to need to work from a top-down uh, hierarchy. So I, I'm hopeful, but I think it's going to take a long time. And so looking at what the government looks like now, I think I'm a bit bleak on that and worried. I mean, if you look at how, at the end, David did describe some of the benefits of the system and those kind of, the, the idea that it can not only provide opportunity, it can also maintain privilege at the same time and those kind of inherent kind of dissonances. One thing that jumped out was that idea that if you can get to college without learning much, you're a smart consumer. And I thought that was uh, <laughs> really spot on. And then Dwayne, you followed up with some, you seemed to, that seemed to hit home with you. Um, yeah, I was, that for me made a lot of sense, but it was just, it also showed how little sense that system <laughs> makes. Well, well, it brought me back to, Rob, did you do the OECs when you were from Ontario, right? Yeah. So for those listening who who wouldn't know what an OEC is. What was it? Ontario? Academic credit? Academic credit. Yeah. Oh, sorry. OACs. Yes. Yeah. Like grade 13, essentially, in Ontario. So school went up to grade 12, but if you wanted to go to university, you had to do your OACs, which was essentially grade 13. And so basically with the OACs, you, didn't, you could do the bare minimum 
and then just start pulling up your socks for the OACs and still get into a really good university. So that yeah. is where I got the, I really touched base with what David was talking about. I'm like, yeah, that was my high school experience. Thank goodness that's not around anymore. Yeah, in in theory, I'm oversimplifying this a bit for anybody not from Ontario. In theory, if you wanted to go to university, the only few months of your academic career that mattered in theory were what September to January of your final year because your first half of the year marks in your OAC courses which is just essentially grade 13 that's what universities saw they didn't look at anything else and then I think there was always the little bit of like traditional leftover like scare tactics of like oh but if it if your marks drop a lot they might rescind their offer and it's like I didn't that never happened to anybody <laughs> that I'd ever heard about. So I think that was a an urban myth, urban legend. Yeah, this will but go, yeah, it's true. This will go on your permanent Do well record. in those three or four months and that's it. Right. So it's interesting because they've got rid of that now. But that was a, a really good example of gaming the system and not learning a lot. I mean, another big example that I come back to a lot so in, in Britain, at the end of primary, we cram for like most of grade five, which is year six, so that the kids do well on that test in May. However, the, the junior high school teachers, so they go on to secondary school. And then those teachers know that they've crammed so much for those tests and then done nothing from May till August, that basically the whole of that year was more or less a write-off. So they more or less reteach all of grade six again Sorry, all of grade five again in grade six and reassess everything knowing that that entire system that is designed to collect data so that the schools can be judged and ranked. So it's, it's a little bit of a, of a tangent because it's, it's a, kind of something where the system is kind of act, actually screwing over students and the, everybody else just to gather some data and the data is not actually meaningful. It doesn't do anything. And, and, and the idea that is there that we've actually designed that whole system so a year of our kids' lives, they don't really learn anything. I guess that's kind of the opposite of this, but it's still another example of where a system designed ostensibly to, to teach people uh, has got a built-in component that does the, does the opposite. Well, it's interesting because it goes wonky by its own design because in theory, in theory... It should, we should be saying, okay, you have your normal school year, and in May, we've got this standardized test, and it's just for us to know how things went. And in theory, that on its own should be okay. But then we say, oh, and we're going to use that data to then inform whatever it is, choose what it is depending on your country, the funding your school gets, or the resources your school gets, or raises for some of your staff or administrators. And it's like, as soon as you take that leap and say, we're using this data for this, then the focus becomes that this, that the data is actually being used for. And now it's no longer the actual check-in of how did the year go. It's no longer that authentic thing. And I, I Sorry, I know I saw this on Reddit, and I forget if it was a quote. Someone, someone referring to, I think the um, the Soviet Union, possibly, um, where he said, 
we knew the politicians were lying. The politicians knew we knew they were lying. And we knew the politicians knew that they knew we knew they were lying. But everyone just kept still talking the same way. And it's almost like that, I think, to some degree with the education. It's like, well, we know the results of the standardized test are not actually just an unbiased collection of data about how things went. We know that most schools are completely redirecting one or more entire year of their school to get ready for this. And we know that basically everyone's doing it. So we know we're actually getting this other completely different set of data from this, but we're going to carry on pretending it's not that. Um, And I think that at its core is like the most unhealthy part of the mainstream gamified part of the system. And I guess that maybe just comes to like the last thing I had hoped to touch on, which was um, that idea of like education as a consumer good um, and that idea of learning versus credentialing. Because whether it's credentialing on the individual student level, or I think there's a connection to be made with this about what we're saying about the problems with standardized testing. Again, this comes into this idea of schools many things to many different people and serving many different purposes. Um, but if it's just that credentialing or just that gamifying of the structure that's there, at the expense of the learning, then I think that's maybe like the moral litmus test for me anyways about education. It's like credentialing, fine. Of course, there's always going to be some gamification, sure. But if those things are compromising that learning, that interest in learning, to me, that's the warning light, the canary in the coal mine that like, we need to check in what's going on here. And I think to some degree, that's what David was saying as well. Yeah, and the really sad part about that is we we ta- we get sucked into that system in elementary school and high school, and then we go to a university, and we kind of play that game. And the people I've met that have more than one degree, they've always told me that, you know, my first degree was a waste of money. It was a second degree where I actually took it because I wanted to learn that, and it was valuable to me. So that's pretty late in your life to be learning that. So I think what what society needs to do is try and figure out a way where we can bring those learnings to the front. So then people are, when they get to university or go to college or wherever they want to go, they know why they want to go. And I guess that's what we're saying is a big component of the progressive education or that into, uh, that um, inclusive I guess we're describing it because it's not just inclusive of the community, but inclusive of all the elements of your personality as well. So obviously the people that go through their education without actually considering or being able to consider why they're doing it or what they want to do it for. That's something that progressive education seeks to bring back in. Not just in the actual teaching styles and the and the curriculum and the content, but actually in the underlying philosophy of no, you're here because this is meaningful to you. But I think what David was saying and what we've seen here is that it is out of whack. It is that if those tensions are pulling, that's not the stronger one. The the 
the force that's saying we're here to kind of promote what's special about you and what's meaningful for you so that you can bring that back into the community. And that has a place in traditional education too, but it has much more of a place in progressive education where it's actually about you as the individual and then taking that back into that community. That's not the strong, that's certainly, sadly, not the strong force in this discussion. And it doesn't actually show up in the model that David described, the three strands, none of those really. It's implied in certain areas, but it's not in there. So in his model, it's not even one of the forces that's really pulling very strongly. Uh, and yet, it's clearly, to me anyway, the missing component of having meaning and putting meaning back in there. But the meaning is located outside of yourself. It's not inside the individual or even inside that small community. The meaning is in the creating the economy. And that's neoconservatism. And if you listen to speeches by education ministers, and like we said a couple of days ago, Rob, to those guys we were talking to, if you, um, if, if you read any article, within three lines, it's about raising test scores. And if you listen to any speech by an education minister, within three sentences, it's about the economy. And then, you know, they maybe throw in a couple, a few caveats to development in other areas. So hope, yes, that I was saying earlier, but unfortunately, I think we're going to have to dig pretty deep to get that idea of the self and meaning into that conversation. Well, I hope more people listen to your podcast because it definitely brings me hope. Thank you very much, Dwayne Primo. It's been a pleasure to have you here and thanks for the interview. Yeah, yeah. thank you to both of you for your conversation with David. Uh, it was great. It was a great way for me as well to access his ideas. I know, Brendan, you had been reading some of his papers and I think forwarded a few of them on to Dwayne and myself as well. You know, I think I've got one foot on the hope pedal and one giant larger foot on the much larger concern and doubt pedal on some completely hippie spaced out level. I do think that the more conversations there are like this, the more these ideas get refined, developed, and spread into the kind of ideas ecosystem where who knows what impact they might have. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks, Brennan.